Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. We come back to Colossians this morning in a passage, um, as we said last week, dealing with evangelism. It's especially helpful for us as we have spent uh, some time in Romans 9 thinking about God's will, God's sovereign will, God's power over evangelism, over salvation in general. Because Romans 9 presents to us this exalted view of the sovereignty of God and salvation. Paul speaks of it, saying in verse 16 of that chapter, that salvation depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. It is an act of God's will. It depends on God's will and not on man's will. But to say that salvation ultimately depends on God's will, not on human will, is not the same as saying that human will has nothing to do with it. I often use the analogy of the inspiration of Scripture. We have in front of us the Bible, which is inspired by God. In fact, Jesus told us that every jot and every tittle, meaning every stroke of every pen of every person who was involved in the writing of Scripture was sovereignly superintended by God. We might say every cross on every T, every dot on every I did not happen apart from the sovereignty of God. That's why we hold so tightly to the Bible. It is divinely inspired. It's unlike any other piece of writing ever in the world. The writer of Hebrews tells us, therefore, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it can divide down to the very um, uh, uh, separating of joints and marrow, or to be explicit, he says, exposing the thoughts and intents or motives of our hearts. And no other words can do that. My words can't do that. My illustrations can't do that. My stories can't do that. My philosophies, my whatever can't do that. There's something special and something unique about the Word of God because of the divine inspiration behind it. Every word of this book then comes by the absolute sovereignty of God. And yet, when we envision that, we don't have this mentality, therefore, that that because God was superintending every stroke of every pen, that the men who wrote it somehow were doing it in some sort of trance where their eyes roll back in their head and their hand is just sort of magically uh, carried across the, the pages as they wrote. Because even while we believe in the absolute sovereignty of God over inspiration, we also believe that human will was fully engaged as these men wrote, so that you can pick up and you can read a book written by Paul and it sounds different than a book written by John because their individual personalities were fully in in play. Their decision-making, their will, their desires, their whatever. We might even say at points their perspectives and yet God was superintending it so that even their finite, limited perspectives were brought about in such a way as to bring about universal, timeless, and inerrant truths. All of this 
is what we believe when we say the Bible is inspired. All of it, God in his sovereignty working through men and their individual wills and superintending the entire process so that when it's all said and done, we can say it is 100% God's word. Even though he uses these individual men, even though they speak about their personal plans, even though they speak about their personal decisions, this is all him. Well, this is really no different than the way we see evangelism in the sovereignty of God. We understand that what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, that all of this is ultimately the work of God's will. We don't understand that to mean that it doesn't involve human will. It does. And we need to grasp that. We need to grasp that because God is sovereign over the whole thing, and yet in God's sovereignty, we have a significant role to play. This is a matter of our choice. This is a matter of our will. It's a matter, we might say, of our obedience. We can be obedient or disobedient to God's call and God's demand on our life in these areas. It demands from us effort. It demands from us prayer. It demands from us planning. And it demands from us skill. If we're to have any hope of being used by this sovereign God in his plan of bringing about the salvation of the lost. That's why the very same Paul who wrote Romans chapter 9 about the sovereignty of God is the very one who just a few years later pins these words in the book of Colossians and there's absolutely no contradiction in the theology that he's appealing to. And this is what Paul wrote in Colossians concerning evangelism. He says in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, this passage gives us very simply four characteristics of the believer who God uses to bring about belief in the hearts of other people. Four ways, we might say, that you and I participate in God's sovereign program as he sovereignly works through us in leading others to himself. And we started looking last week at the first one of these in verses 2 and 3, which is persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. Paul is calling on them to pray, to pray steadfastly with watchfulness and thanksgiving, because as we said, we are lulled into a spiritual sleep by the darkness around us. The world doesn't want you to pray. The world doesn't want you to invest time before God's throne. The world doesn't want you to believe that that's useful uh, in your management of time. And so it wants to consume you with the cares of this life and the cares of this world. It wants to lull you to sleep. And so Paul's command is that you not let that happen, that you are awake, that you are uh, aware, that you are watchful, as uh, ESV translates it. 
And secondly, he wants you to have thanksgiving because if you are not constantly reminding yourself of the, God, of the ways God has already answered prayer, then you're not likely to keep asking him for other things. And so you have got to drive yourself to thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in the way that he's worked in your marriage. Thanksgiving in the way he's worked in the lives of your children. Thanksgiving in the way he's worked in your church and in your business. Thanksgiving in the ways he's worked in your own heart and all these ways around you. Thanking him constantly. Paul says, do this, pray persistently, and remember us that this door of opportunity would be open to us because right now I'm sitting in prison. I'm in chains, he says, for this gospel. So pray that those chains will fall off and that I will walk out of here and I will have an open door for ministry to be able to speak as I ought to speak. That word day in Greek, the word ought can be translated must, which really takes us to the second characteristic of the believer that God uses, not only one who is persistent in prayer, but one who is faithful in proclamation. He's faithful in proclamation, which is what Paul's asking for there in verse 3, that they would pray he would declare the mystery of Christ. That, as he says in verse 4, I may make it clear, which is the way I must speak, the way I ought to speak. Make it clear, basically, is the word manifest, fenero, uh, fenereo, which is basically revealing. I want to reveal to all the people around me, I want to uncover this message. I want to bring it out of the darkness into the light. I want to, I want to broadcast it. This is Paul's great concern that the gospel would not be veiled any longer. It was previously veiled in the sense that it was a mystery. That's the way he refers to it here. That's what mystery means in the New Testament, something that was previously unrevealed. But he says, now I've been entrusted with the mystery of Christ and I want to take the curtain off of it. I've got this message that was a, a something of a secret message in the Old Testament period, but now is fully understood because of the revelation of Jesus Christ, and I want to make it fully understood by everyone around me. That's the contrast in the passage here. It was a mystery, now I want to make it clear. God is opening up hearts all the time to people. God is opening up his gospel to people all the time. Paul wants to participate in that. Proclaim the gospel, or I should say by proclaiming the gospel. Paul really saw himself just as following in after the ways of his God. It was God's delight to make this gospel known. It was God's joy to tell of the good news. Remember, he was the one who announced it with a choir of angels out to shepherds as they watched over their flock by night. It was God's joy, God's delight to do this. And now Paul, he just wants to imitate God. He wants to imitate God's love for the lost. He wants to imitate God's uh, passion for the gospel. And so he wants to make pains to make this gospel known, to manifest it. To make it clear. As he says in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, 
but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Paul doesn't know the way God's going to use the message, but he wants to proclaim it still, and he wants to make it clear. It's interesting, nowhere in here does he ever ask for any kind of response. He doesn't ask that you would pray or the Colossians would pray that a certain number of people would respond to him. That wasn't his concern, that was God's concern. His concern was simply with himself as a mouthpiece. That he would not distort the gospel, that he wouldn't veil the gospel, that he wouldn't somehow make the gospel... uh, confusing, if you will. He just wants to make it clear. He simply asks prayer that he might make the mystery known. We can fail at that. We can obscure the gospel by a hypocritical life. We can obscure the gospel by a misunderstanding of it. We can obscure the gospel by focusing on pet issues and... and um, you know, uh, personal uh, uh, interest, maybe even good interest, theological interest, but talking to people about doctrines that we might say are ancillary to them coming to the very important thing of repentance and knowledge of Christ. We can obscure the gospel by refusing to speak of it. We can obscure the gospel by just simply not being sensitive to the language we use when we present it. Paul says, I don't want to do any of that. I want to make it clear. I want to speak it. I want to proclaim it. I want to reveal it the way that God revealed it to me. And thus glorify Him. If you have your Bibles, look with me back a few pages over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, one of my favorite passages when Paul is sort of saying similar things. He says, to the Corinthians in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 4, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He's just saying, this is, all, this is what we do. We, we get rid of all that stuff that would obscure the gospel, hypocritical living, inconsistent living, and even confusion about the truth. And just simply by openly talking about the truth, we are commending ourselves to each person's conscience in the sight of God, and God takes care of the rest. As he says in verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in which case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as the servants of Jesus Christ. For God, who said, let light shine of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then one of my favorite verses about evangelism, in verse 7. So we have this treasure in pots of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, he says. So here I am, all I am is just a a jar, just a pot, nothing of any worth. I'm not made out of gold. I'm not made out of silver. I'm just a simple clay pot. And this is the treasure that I have, this amazing gospel that I commend to other people's conscience and God, when people hear it, it is God who then speaks into their hearts, just like he spoke into the darkness of creation. And out of nothing, he brings forth faith. Paul says, this is the way we ought to speak, back over in Colossians chapter 4. This is what I want you to pray for me to do. That I would speak this as I ought to speak it. As I must speak it, could be translated. I have a stewardship, I have responsibility. And I want to be found faithful with that. So Paul says, look, be alert, be thankful, be praying for us that that would happen. Be understanding the responsibility that we have to speak the gospel clearly with consistent lives. And then thirdly, the third characteristic of the person that God uses in his sovereign plan in verse 5 is simply the deliberate use of your time. The deliberate use of your time. As Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Walk is just sort of the way that you live. It's it's a word that's used in the New Testament to, to speak about your entire life. He's not talking, in other words, about a Tuesday night evangelism program. He's not talking about a once a, a, once a year a crusade. He's not talking about a foreign mission trip. He's saying in the entire course of your life, take consideration of how you are using your time and use it wisely. He's speaking here, of course, of outsiders, those who are outside the community of faith, outside the body of Christ, outside of the church. And because they are outside, they're not familiar with your practices, they're not familiar with your religious traditions, they're not even familiar all the time with your religious language. And because they're outside, they've not experienced what you have experienced, and consequently there is potential misunderstanding. It's like when you're talking to a young person and you know, you're telling them about marriage and, 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 and you're excited because the Lord's blessed your life and they, they just, all they've done is just imbibe the world. You know, oh, it's just shackles, you know, the old ball and chain. I'm just going to live single till, you know, as long as I can. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to do all these things. And they're going to keep saying that until what? Until they meet her. And then they're going to say, How, what, 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 now when's the date? When can I get married? They just haven't experienced what you've experienced. And so you just have to be prepared for that. You have to be prepared for the fact that it's going to take a while to sometimes get this across to them. But Scripture exhorts you to approach that with wisdom. With wisdom. Which Paul, in the context here, defines as making the best use of your time. uh, Just realizing the opportunities that are around you, seizing those opportunities. Paul, as we said, was praying for an open door. He wasn't, he wasn't praying for, uh, 
you know, a, a softball, if you will, uh, of an evangelistic opportunity, he was praying to be released from prison. But for you and I, as uh, Steve said earlier, we have a, a open doors all around us. And so the first part of wisdom is realizing the opportunities that you have, taking account of all the opportunities that we have. In fact, making the most of opportunity is actually in Greek an accounting word. It is financial language that Paul is applying to the issue of time. Literally in the King James, it even translates it, redeeming the time, which is an accounting word for buying something back. Buying something back, conveying the idea of purchasing something, paying the price that is necessary for obtaining it. It's really an interesting concept of time. I think as I was thinking about this this week, you know, we, we talk about how you use your free time. Well, for Paul, all time would have been free if he was out of prison, right? I mean, he, when you talk about free time, he would give you a different perspective. You have Free time all the time. I mean, even the choice that you make in your career sometimes, you could say, I mean, that's just, that's just up to you. And if you're in a job that for whatever reason is not allowing you to be used in the greatest way by the Lord, then you, maybe you need to consider doing something else. Because everything you have in life is a stewardship and you need to think about the opportunities Because you're not living just for this life. You're not living just for this world. You're not living just for your career and for your house and for your car and for whatever kind of leisures you have. That's not your purpose. And so to be wise, to be wise, you need to take account of every opportunity and ask yourself, what is it paying out? And what am I paying for it? Which is really another sense that you can think of time is that every minute costs you something. It's either an investment, uh, spiritually speaking, or spiritually speaking, it's an expense. We're either gaining something with our time or we are giving it up. This is the biblical concept of time. It can be costly. But the one who is guided by wisdom understands the value of time. He doesn't throw away his time on frivolous, useless, passing endeavors. He's constantly looking for ways to buy up more time for the sake of eternal investments. Ephesians 5.16 uses this same phrase and it says, Make the best use of time because the days are evil. Say, well, how can the days be evil? I mean, there's sunsets and sunrises and there's walks in the park and there's all these wonderful things. I mean, days in and of themselves aren't evil. Well, Paul's not necessarily talking about the day so much as the age, the worldview, the the spirit of the times that's constantly wanting to drag you into its interests, into its pursuits, which are not eternal, which are not focused on the glory of God. They are, we might say, worthless. And so he says, make the best use of your time because the world is wanting to draw you into worthless endeavors, evil endeavors. 
And so a wise and a prudent believer will carefully assess the value of each of his days, each of his times, each of his hours, all of his schedule to make the best use of it. Or as Moses says, teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. Help us to realize we might be right now 16 years old, we might be 26 years old, we might be 36 years old, we might be 56 years old. But no matter where we are in life, we need to take stock of the time we have left. So in relation to believer, or excuse me, to unbelievers, particularly here, we are to understand the value of every opportunity and we are to redeem it. Redeem it by applying wisdom to it. How do you do that? Well, you act with wisdom in each of those moments. You take advantage of those things. What does that look like? Well, I mean, there would be an entire study, really, to answer that question. But I can give you just a couple of things. Some ways that you can act with wisdom toward outsiders in redeeming your time. This is some, just a couple simple ways you can act with wisdom toward outsiders in redeeming your time. This is the first one. Don't disassociate with them. Do not disassociate with unbelievers. That is our tendency. We begin to think that God has called us because he wants us to be separate from the sinful lifestyles that they have, that God therefore wants us to be separated spatially or in our schedule from unbelievers, and that is not true. In fact, over in Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5, this is what Paul was writing to the Corinthian church when he was talking about outsiders. The same word he uses in Colossians. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I wrote a letter to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since you would have to go out of the world but I'm writing to you, not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church that we're called to judge? God judges those on the outside. And so purge the evil person from within you or from among you. In other words, Paul says, look, if you want to disassociate with someone, disassociate with the person who's calling himself a Christian, but still living like an unbeliever. But as far as the outsiders go, that's not our job. Our job is not to judge them and not to disassociate with them and not to write them off. So take stock of your life and ask yourself, where in my life is the adulterer? Where in my life is the swindler? Where in my life is the idolater? Because this is the call on my life. Not to go out of the world, but to be in the world, but not of it. So one of the first things in wisdom is to realize that you're not called to disassociate with unbelievers. In fact, you're called to have them in your home. To have them in your life. You're called 
to go into their little leagues and into their you know, environments of uh, social interaction at times. You're called to meet them at work, to invite them into your home, whatever it might be, to make contact with them. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go and, uh, you know, pull up a bar stool beside them and, and drink their whiskey with them in order to become relevant and to associate with the world. I'm not calling you to associate with their lifestyle nor their deeds of darkness which Paul says are not even appropriate to be mentioned among you you have to be careful that you don't put yourself in positions where simply by being with them in their environment you will be uh, associated with their lifestyle but that's the wisdom that you need to realize those many opportunities that don't put you in that place, but the many opportunities in your life to invite unbelievers into your environment, to invite them into your life. Now, beyond that, I want to have you turn with me over to James for a second because the book of James also tells us a little bit about wisdom. James 3.13, this is what he says. Who is wise and understanding among you? So here we have. This is the way you conduct yourself with wisdom. This is where you get wisdom. He says, Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This isn't wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly It's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is, and James gives us a number of characteristics here. First of all, it's pure. It's pure. Just think about that in consideration of your interaction with outsiders your interaction with unbelievers that your interaction has to be first of all pure which is a premier feature of godly wisdom it's cleanness it's absence from sinful influence it's abstinence from the kind of selfish and corrupting indulgence that marks the world secondly James says it is peaceable. That is, it brings about peace. Not warfare, not strife, not not attention. In fact, it is peacemakers, we're told by Jesus, who will be recognized by the world as the children of God. It will be one of the defining characteristics of you that you're a child of God. People just know it when they see you. Like, you know, when I go to Europe, they're going to know I'm an American because I wear baggy clothes and I walk funny. They'll just, you know, some people just see you and the things that are evident in your life, they just know, well, that, that, that guy's godly. Why is he godly? Because he's a peacemaker. He's a child of God. So he's, the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, then what? Gentle. Wisdom is not marked by retaliation. It's not marked by attempts to get back 
It's not marked by attempts to tear down your enemies. It deals delicately. It shows personal sacrifice. It is attentive to the sensitivities of other people and handles them gently. And then next, it is open to reason or some places translate it reasonable or an alternate translation is willing to yield. That is to say, a a wise person is eager to comprehend, to understand the perspective of another person and where possible to yield to it. Reasonableness, an, an intent to find places of uncompromising compromise. Uncompromising compromise. In other words, all those personal effects, all those personal areas, all those individual likes and dislikes and opinions and individual judgments, a wise person is looking to set all those things aside, whereas he cannot set aside what is biblical and what is uh, 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 clearly defined by Scripture in all the other areas of his life. His wisdom is manifest in an eagerness, a reasonableness when he's working with other people. And then he's full of mercy, meaning that he doesn't approach other people to deal with their sins without taking serious stock of his own. When you're with him and or when you're with other people, I should say, and you have to talk to them about sins in their life, you are always framing it in the proper biblical term. Well, I know this and this and this about myself. I know I'm dealing with a log in my own eye. I recognize, I see this in your life. I'm guilty of the same thing. That's what you hear coming from wisdom. That comes from above. It's full of mercy because it recognizes how much mercy it has received. And then all the good fruits, all the good deeds, the acts of kindness, the generosity, all of those things that flow from that. Good fruits, impartiality, sincerity, which is really another way of saying a lack of hypocrisy. You're not judging others for the very things that you do. You're not measuring other people by a different standard than you want to be measured by. This is wisdom that's from above. So this is the way you make yourself wise in your opportunities with outsiders. You lay aside all of this self-righteous, hypocritical, judgmental language. You lay aside all of the harshness. You lay aside all of the personal uh, effects, all of the personal judgments and opinions. You dwell with them in peace and in gentleness and in mercy. Inviting them into your life because you know as Darby sang to us earlier, Our first prayer is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Long before we had the opportunity to even pray for them. All this sort of leads us to the final thing back over in Colossians chapter 4. The way that we use our time, the way that we are used by the Lord in His sovereign plan. We know that He is in control of all those who come to faith in Christ. But we also understand that in His sovereignty... The way we conduct ourselves 
has an impact on whether we're used in his sovereign plan. And so one of the, way, one of the things that we need to do, Paul says in verse 6, is we need to have tactful speech, tactful words. We need to let our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we might know how we ought to answer each person. So one of the things that marks the person who is used by the sovereign God is that they are thoughtful, they are considerate, and they are gracious in their words towards outsiders. An effective life for God is not simply the person who can dump a bunch of memorized verses or who can, who can spout a bunch of systematized theology on someone. It is a matter of being sensitive to where people are when we meet them and sensitive to what God is doing as we speak to them. So that we can present the gospel to them with as little obstruction and distraction as possible. In other words, an effective evangelist considers each person that he meets and what words would best be received by that person. And Paul says that would be words which are gracious and seasoned with salt. There's some debate here about what the image is that Paul's using because salt could talk about words that are simply preserved from corruption as you would salt a piece of meat in order to keep it for long-term um, storage. Or it could be salt in the sense of simply adding flavor to us. Whichever it is though, the idea is clearly that we should carefully consider our words. And the impression that our words might give to unbelievers. You might be thinking, well, I thought we were not supposed to worry about what the world thought about us. I mean, we're just, we just preach it, right? We just preach the gospel and let the chips fall. We just make it known and who cares what they think? No, not at all. Certainly wasn't the view of our Savior. It wasn't the view of Paul. He was careful Always not to be unnecessarily offensive or obnoxious. Too many of us know obnoxious Christians. They're obnoxious in their witness. They're obnoxious in their discipleship. They are pushy. They are rude. They're self-assuming. Presumptuous. They don't season their words at all. Listen to Paul, though. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, 3, he describes his ministry as, quote, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry would not be discredited, but in everything we commend ourselves as servants of God. Or in 1 Corinthians 10, he exhorts us to give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that many might be saved. He is always thinking about unnecessary offense. Or in Titus chapter 2, in all things show yourself an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent might be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about you. Sure, let him talk about your doctrine, but don't let it be about you, that you are just simply rude. Rude. 
that you're obnoxious. We must have a good reputation. In fact, did you know that's one of the key requirements of a church leader in 1 Timothy chapter 3? That in order to be in spiritual leadership, in order to be an overseer, an elder in the church, one of the things you must have is you must have a good reputation with people who are on the outside. You can't just slap on your badge, on your arm, the badge that everyone hates you on your street and therefore you are a preacher of the gospel. That's not according to Scripture anyway. So what are we doing? We're constantly seasoning, preparing ourselves. Why? Paul says, so that you might know how you are to answer, how you ought to answer each person. It's an interesting phrase. As you season your words, you are doing this, Paul says, not so that you can impose yourself on other people, but so that you can answer them. Because I think Paul realizes that the best opportunities that are in front of you each day are not necessarily when you are imposing yourself on people who really never ask to hear your views on religion or anything else, but they are those opportunities to respond all of the little invitations that come your way in life that you may not realize that means when someone complains to you about world events or society you need to be prepared for a gracious response maybe you might ask them well why do you think people do such terrible things a bombing a bus blowing up and they're complaining about it and they're talking about how we need better political leaders and more military money and all those other things. And you just say, well, why do you think people do such things? What an opportunity. Or when someone asks you what you do, instead of saying, well, I'm a scientist, you might respond by saying, well, I, I'm involved with research trying to discover how uh, God's universe functions. Really? You're a scientist and you believe in God? Or when someone is telling you about some good fortune that they have, you might ask them, well, why do you think God brought that into your life? Or when someone complains about their spouse and how difficult it is getting along with them, you might say, well, you know, I used to think about marriage that way. That was before I discovered God's design for marriage, which is seen in his love for the church. They may not want to have any, they, they might say, well, see ya. Or they might say, what are you talking about? Or when someone talks to you about how difficult it is to raise your children. And you might say, well, my wife and I have really been trying to to bring together discipline and love. It's a method based based on the Bible. Have you ever ever heard of it? I mean, all those opportunities, they're in front of you all the time. I mean, just conversations about life bring them. And so Paul says, pray that you can season your words with salt so that you can make the most of every opportunity, so that you can be prepared when those things come along. Too many of us were brought up in that that era when we were taught that polite conversation never delves into two things, politics and religion. And we have believed that satanic lie. 
Well, politics maybe, but on the other side, religion, (laughs) we've believed it. But we shouldn't compartmentalize our life because our faith impacts everything. It impacts our family. It impacts our finances. It impacts our our emotional well-being. It impacts the way we think about our personal history, the way we think about our personal pastime, our dreams, our aspirations, all that stuff that are the parts of daily conversation. And so for us to talk ought to be to talk about our religion. It ought to be to talk about our faith. And we ought to be able to be prepared to see in any topic of conversation an avenue where we can mention the Lord. Not shoving the gospel down people's throats, but making our speech as palatable as possible. Proverbs sixteen thirteen: the heart of the wise teaches his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Proverbs 15, 2, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable while the mouth of fools just spouts folly. So here you are, if you're a wise man, if you're wise and making the use of your time, this is what you're doing. You are instructing, you're teaching your mouth and making your knowledge of the gospel as palatable, as acceptable as you possibly can in holding to the truth. We're going to have opportunities. In fact, we're going to have... We're going to have even opportunity to be trained. We have an evangelism class starting up at the beginning of next year. And so if you just need to, just to be, be deepened in these things, you can see Randy or Jeff Horn and they'll be glad to get you in there. But even beyond that, just praying in our own lives to begin to properly assess our time, to be committed to using it to the best use we can, to begin realizing that God has given us a stewardship so that we ought to speak. We must speak. And then praying. Praying. Persistently. That we would make the best use of our time and season our words with salt. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for another reminder from your truth. This word comes to us with both uh, conviction and also with encouragement. As we clear out all the clutter of our minds, Lord, we recommit ourselves right now. That wherever we go today, in whatever restaurants we're in, in whatever conversations we have, in our walks through our neighborhood, in our work, in our offices, may we be prepared to answer everyone with words, wise words, peaceable and gentle words, seasoned words, but words of truth. And if the gospel is veiled, may it not be veiled by our, our closed lips, our hypocritical lives, our distorting of the truth. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled by the one who is blinding the minds, but we speak our treasure is the power of the gospel within us. And you will use us in your sovereign plan. And we will rejoice in that. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.